The Bible is a collection of 66 individual books written by 40 different authors across three different continents in three different languages over a span of 1,500 years. It was penned by kings and peasants, those who were educated and uneducated, public officials and farmers, teachers and physicians, writing from prisons, palaces, cities, dungeons, the wilderness, and at least one remote island. And yet altogether, these 66 books tell the singular most powerful story in all of human history. The story of Jesus Christ and the redemption of mankind. It is a story without equal and one that every single one of us is a part of. So you understand, without his story, you don't have a story. All of your dreams, all of your plans, everything you enjoy in this life and all that you have to look forward to only exists because of this story, because of his story. It all hinges on him. Without Jesus, there's nothing to enjoy today and nothing to work toward tomorrow. We have no life or breath without him because without Jesus, none of this or none of this or none of us exists. Luke records the Apostle Paul addressing a group of pagan philosophers, the greatest secular minds of the day at the Areopagus, the ruling court in Athens in the first century AD. And in his address to these brilliant thinkers, Paul quotes a poem from 600 BC written by a man named Epimenides of Crete. It was a poem written about the Greek god Zeus. And Paul quotes that poem when he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17, 28. But of course, Paul is applying this quote originally written about Zeus, a quote from one of their own pagan poems. He's using it to refer to Jesus Christ. He was saying to these spectacularly brilliant and yet utterly lost men, you have the right idea, but the wrong person. Because without Jesus Christ, even the mortal mind who dreamed up the very idea of Zeus wouldn't exist. To the church in Corinth, he said, For us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. 1 Corinthians 8.6 To the church in Colossae, he said, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. The author of Hebrews wrote, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Hebrews 1, 3. King David wrote, you open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Psalm 145, 16. While the apostle John wrote, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. John 1, 3 and 4. The NIV says it this way. In him was life and that life 
was the light of all mankind, not just the light of the portions of mankind that happened to believe in him. No, he is the life that is the light of all mankind. Why? Because without Jesus, nothing exists. So you understand, this story about him that we call the gospel, this story about him is not just a story in the history of the world or one of the more well-known stories in the human record. No, the story of Jesus is the story that all other stories exist because of, including your story. Which means as we go on about our lives, we really need to stop trying to figure out how Jesus fits into our story and start trying to figure out how we fit in to his story. Because listen, whether we like it or not, we are living in his story. And yet it is so easy to lose sight of that for different reasons, which we're going to see in the portion of his story we're studying today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the gospel according to Mark, where we find these people back then, just as we do today, trying to write their own stories independent of his. And what happens when you do that is you become disconnected from the very thing that your entire story depends upon. It's like commissioning a great work of art without the painter. Right? You can purchase the very best canvas and the very best brushes and the very best paint and the very best easel and then you can place it all just perfectly before the very best landscape. But listen, without the painter, all you're ever going to have is a blank canvas and a lot of really nice wasted supplies. You see, your life is a blank canvas that Jesus wants to paint a masterpiece on. But when you fail to give all of those resources and the canvas itself to the painter, in the end it all amounts to an incomplete picture at best or an empty canvas at worst. Yet when you recognize that your life is the canvas that he is painting his story on and that each New day, every decision, every relationship, every action of your life is but another brushstroke of the creator painting his masterpiece. Then these life moments, like buying a house, it becomes far less about how many bedrooms and bathrooms it has or the neighborhood it happens to be in and far more about how does my family living in that house fit into the gospel story I'm living in. Right? Taking that new job becomes less about income and position and more about how that job fits into the gospel story that you're living in. Who you marry, where you go, what you do, when you recognize that you are in fact living in someone else's story, in his story, and so you give everything you have to him to work with, then your daily decisions take on a whole new dimension, a whole new purpose, and that's when you start to see the story of your life really begin to take shape and to make sense. We're going to see that today as we pick up the story where we left off last time, so let's read it together and see what we can learn about living in his story. We'll begin at Mark chapter 8 with the first 13 verses. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, 
I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can, we feed, uh, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full, and there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. So Mark starts out the story with, in those days, which means he's continuing the story from the last chapter, which ended with Jesus healing a deaf and mute man in the Gentile region of the Decapolis on the eastern side of the lake, which means they're still in that region, further confirmed uh, by the fact that Jesus described some of the people as having come from far away, uh, as the region of Decapolis was not only a very... A rugged area geographically, but it had far fewer towns and villages than what they had on the western side of the lake, which meant it would be a perilous journey for many of them to have to go all the way back home through that geography without any food. As Jesus points out, they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, which uh, wouldn't so much be the case on the western side of the lake, which was far more populated. And so out of great compassion... Jesus performs another large-scale miracle to a group of Gentiles, much like the one you'll remember from recently that he performed for a group of Jews back in chapter 6, where we saw Jesus feeding 5,000 men with just five loaves of bread and two fish, although that was a far larger crowd uh, than this one, according to Mark, where in the first event, you'll remember he used the Greek word for men that is gender-specific, meaning the count of the 5,000 men was just men. It didn't include women and children, so that was a far larger group of people, probably upwards of 15 or 20,000 in total, whereas Mark here simply describes the crowd as 4,000 people. It's actually different language, uh, different words he's using in the Greek, and it's implying that the women and children are included in this count given in this particular story. Uh, of course, that doesn't make the miracle any less miraculous, right? Or any less curious that these disciples seem baffled at how they're going to provide food for 4,000 people with seven loaves of bread and some fish after just having fed far more people which is five loaves of bread and two fish in the very recent past. But the reason uh, why actually will become quite clear as we get a little deeper into the story. Uh, interestingly, by the way, there was also great prophetic significance between these two mass feedings. When Jesus fed the large crowd of Jews back in chapter 6, he prayed according to Jewish custom as described by the Greek word eulageo in chapter 6 verse 41, whereas here in uh, chapter 8, verse 6, he's employing a Gentile Christian form of a blessing called Eucharisto uh, in the Greek, which, of course, is where we get our English word Eucharist from that we use to describe the Lord's Supper today. So that came straight from Jesus. And yet, 
even more compelling is the fact that at the end of the Jewish feeding miracle, there were 12 basketfuls of food left over, just as there were 12 tribes of Israel. And yet after this Gentile feeding, there are seven basketfuls of food left over, just as there were seven Gentile nations in Canaan. The Hittites, uh, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Hivites, excuse me, and the Jebusites. That points to the fact that the bread of life that Jesus was bringing to the world was not just for all of the Jews, the 12 tribes of Israel, but for all the nations of the Gentiles as well. It's amazing. Can you, can you begin to see how in the places that Jesus and his disciples go and in the conversations they have and the very words they speak and even in the leftover food they eat, Jesus' story, the gospel story is being told over and over and over again. Truly, we are living in his story. And so Jesus and his disciples get back into the boat and cross over the lake back to the western side, the Jewish side, where he's promptly confronted by the Pharisees who came and begin to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And if you read that in the ancient Greek, you'll find that description of the Pharisees testing Jesus to be woefully inadequate, too weak, actually, of a translation. The original language actually paints this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees as them putting him on trial maliciously. They were so openly hostile toward him at this point, they're trying to berate him into submission. The fact is, <clears throat> they'd already seen him perform countless miracles, signs, right, which they already attributed to the power of Satan working through Jesus back in chapter 3, verse 22. The truth is, these Pharisees weren't the least bit interested in seeing a sign to prove that Jesus was who he claimed to be. No, what they wanted was for him to submit to them. The Pharisees didn't want to know Jesus. They wanted to control Jesus. Why? Because they didn't like where his story was going, but like it or not, this was his story, and the Pharisees could not control it. Of course, it's easy uh, for us today, I think, to look down our noses a bit at these religious Jews who were seeking a sign from Jesus for their own selfish purposes, but honestly, how often do we seek a sign from Jesus today for our own selfish purposes? And, and, you know, certainly it's not wrong for us to ask him for something in your life. In fact, we're instructed in Scripture to do just that. And listen, it's what drives that request that matters. Are you asking because you want to see his story unfold in your life? Or is it merely to fulfill a personal desire, something that serves your own purposes? Right? Because, listen, if it's the latter, whether you realize it or not, you're trying to control the story just like the Pharisees were. That's why the Apostle John said, this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, 1 John 5, 14. You understand, according to his will is according to his story. It's asking on his terms, not ours, which is the only way you're ever going to get anywhere with Jesus. You see, when we demand something from God to suit our own personal desires, we're trying to control the story, to make him act on our terms instead of us submitting to him on his terms, as we'll see in the story today. That approach isn't going to get you anywhere with God. Okay, the truth is, 
really, the truth is, if we submitted, if we truly submitted all of our decisions, even just the big decisions, to the will of Christ before we made those decisions, I dare say that most of our lives would look drastically different than they do today. If we actually submitted every aspect of our lives to Christ, our lives would be so radical, the world wouldn't know what to do with us today, just as it didn't know what to do with Jesus then. Because look, in the first century, there was no such thing as casual Christianity. If there had been, the Pharisees wouldn't have bothered to even notice it, as Pastor John Rice once said, the world never burned a casual Christian at the stake. And yet in the modern church culture that we're living in, we've elevated and promoted a gospel that promises almost everything for us while expecting almost nothing from us. And I'm telling you, we've bought it hook, line, and sinker, which is evidenced by the fact that so much of the modern church has proven itself powerless to affect meaningful change in our culture, let alone in the rest of the world in our lifetime. Why? Because we are more enamored with our story than we are with his. Think about it. And just be honest with yourself. If you spend more time on social media promoting what you're doing rather than what God is doing, whose story are you living for? If the bulk of your time is spent doing what you want without first asking what God wants you to do with that time, whose story are you living for? If investing into the lifeblood of the local church is something you do, as long as you're feeling good, and don't dislike anyone there, and agree with everything the pastor says, and don't have anything else you'd rather be doing that day, whose story are you living for? Look, what if we turned off the air conditioner? What if we took away the soft chairs and the cool music and the hot coffee and you had to walk to a church service that lasted all day long in the heat of summer or the dead of winter? Be honest, would you still come like they do in other parts of the world? And if the honest answer is no, then I think we have to ask ourselves, whose story are we living for? I know it's a hard question, but it is a necessary question given the state of the modern Western church today that promises so much and yet expects so little because we're trying to control the story. Why do we do that? Well, first of all, in order to make it more palatable for a culture that is increasingly hostile to the gospel, but also to bring it more in line with our comfortable lifestyle. But look, we... We can't control his story today any more than the Pharisees could then. Because whether we like it or not, we are living in his story, and it is a story that has already been written. Which means no matter how hard you try, you cannot fit Jesus into your narrative, into your story. No, the best that you can do is to do everything that you can do to fit your life into his story. And I'm telling you, the payoff in this life is that you get to watch Jesus make a masterpiece out of everything that you give him. Let's keep reading verses 14 through 26. Now they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. He said to them, do you, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, don't even enter the village. So the Pharisees get nowhere with Jesus by trying to control him as he refuses their demand for a sign. He gets back into the boat, and he goes to the other side of the lake. And on the way, Jesus tries to make the most of their time by teaching the disciples something useful based on the interaction they just had with the Pharisees. And so he says, fellas, listen to me, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Leaven is a yeast that ferments, causing dough to rise when you're making bread. And in ancient rabbinic literature, leaven is a metaphor uh, almost always used in the negative sense. Likewise, uh, in the New Testament, with only one exception, leaven is always used to allude to corruption or unholiness or danger. In fact, in Matthew and Luke's accounts of this same story, the leaven, uh, is related to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and their teachings. And what is so frightening about that is the fact that Jesus is warning these disciples, his own disciples, of their own susceptibility to the leaven of the Pharisees. Now just think about that. These men who are with Jesus all day, every day, according to Jesus, are at grave risk of becoming as hard-hearted as the Pharisees who were trying to kill him. It's not only proven, by the way, by his own family so far throughout the gospel and by Judas at the end of Jesus' life on this earth, but it's proven in just the next few verses as it becomes evident that these men who are the closest people to Jesus on the planet, who have seen all of the miracles and heard all of the teaching and received all of his blessings, are completely clueless about the gospel that Jesus is living out right there in front of them. They think he's referring to their lack of bread in the boat right after he just got done feeding 4,000 hungry people with seven loaves of bread and a few fish. And so Jesus, incredulous at their lack of understanding, peppers them with questions. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened, having eyes? Do you not see, having ears? Do you not hear? And do you not remember? Seriously, guys, I just fed 4,000 people right in front of you. Did you forget about that already? Do you honestly think I'm worried about our lack of bread in the boat? Did you not see what I just did? Can you not hear me? Are you not listening to what I'm trying to teach you? Are your hearts so hard that you still don't know who I am or what I've come to do? And then right after this, 
tongue lashing by Jesus, they land on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee and come to Bethsaida where Jesus seizes an opportunity to show his disciples in a very tangible way exactly what he's been trying to teach them as the people there bring him this blind man for him to heal. So Jesus leads them away from the people so that he can demonstrate for these 12 without the distractions of the crowds their own blindness to the truth about Jesus, which also explains this two-stage uh, healing of the blind man, which had nothing to do, by the way, with an inability uh, of Jesus or lack of power on, on his part to heal the man in the first try. It had everything to do with Jesus demonstrating in a tangible way the progression of revelation that the disciples must experience if they're ever going to be able to see clearly with their spiritual eyes. And so Jesus spits on the man's eyes, which actually, and it sounds weird to us, but that was actually a fairly well-known treatment for blindness in the ancient Near East, believe it or not. In fact, I was reading uh, this week Tacitus. Uh, it was a, a great first century Roman historian. Many say the greatest of his time in, in the first century. And he records this story about the Roman emperor Vespasian spitting on a blind man's eyes and cheeks in order to restore his sight, which, uh, given all the reports, there's some debate as to whether or not it worked. Like, they think maybe the guy was saying it worked because he was afraid if he said it didn't work, the emperor would cut his head off. So we don't know if it ever worked or not, but the point is it was something they tried often. And so as strange as it sounds to us, Jesus was doing something that was an acceptable treatment at the time for blindness, uh, no doubt, after many others had surely tried and failed on this same man, all of his friends and family, I'm certain. So, uh, but the method's not the point. It was the progression of the man's healing, right? As Jesus spits on the man's eyes and lays his hands on him and then asks him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. And again, this response was for the benefit of his disciples who believed in Jesus, but they still couldn't fully perceive who he was or what he'd come to do. And it was if, as if they saw him, but only partially, just like the blind man's partially restored vision. And so Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly, which was not only uh, the restoration of the physical sight for this man, but it was also a prophetic glimpse into the beginning of the restoration of the spiritual sight for these disciples, as we'll see in the last part of the story today in just a few minutes. And so, just as the Pharisees could not control the story that was unfolding through Jesus, the disciples could not see it up to this point. They could not fully see Jesus for who he was or what he was there to accomplish. In fact, the full revelation of the Christ to these men was a progressive one throughout the gospel story with uh, certainly several watershed moments along the way, like the calming of the storm in chapter 4, uh, when he walks on water in chapter 6, Peter's confession, which we'll see today, the transfiguration, which we'll see next week, the crucifixion at the end of Jesus' life on earth, and yet it was ultimately not until his resurrection and ascension that the revelation of the Christ comes into fullness for these disciples as their understanding was yet incomplete, and that's the key. Their understanding was yet incomplete, and this raises a profound uh, a profoundly important uh, point for every one of us today, for every believer today. Listen, back on the boat, Jesus wasn't warning the disciples about their hearts becoming hardened due to a lack of faith. 
No, he was warning them that their hearts would become hardened due to a lack of understanding, which is precisely the problem plaguing the church today in epic proportions, a deep poverty of biblical literacy, a tremendous lack of biblical understanding among believing Christians, and the result is not only members of the church, but leaders of the church leaving the fellowship and the faith, as we've just seen recently in some high-profile cases, where a clear lack of understanding has led to a hardening of the heart toward Christ and his body. Bible scholar James Edwards said, failure to understand leads to hardness of heart. The plea for understanding is a reminder that faith is not separate from understanding, but only possible through understanding. Okay, faith without understanding is a shallow faith at best, and over time it breeds hardened hearts, which was proven time and again by his own disciples and has been proven over and over again in the church ever since. So, uh, so look, you can believe in Jesus. In fact, you can even walk with him in some level of obedience for years, but do you understand it is possible to do that and still be more focused on your story than you are on his, which is exactly what was happening with these disciples. They were with Jesus day in and day out, doing what he told them to do, and yet just by listening in on their conversations about food from day to day, it becomes quite clear that they were more focused on themselves than they were on Jesus. And the result was a deep lack of uh, understanding about who Jesus was and what he was actually there to do. And as Mark tells us at points along the way, the result was these disciples' hearts were hardened. But honestly, isn't that exactly what we do today? We believe in Jesus. We get involved in church. We teach our kids to do the same. We, we seemingly live good Christian lives, but in reality, I think most of us are far more focused on our own story than we are on his, which is precisely how you end up with churches full of people who believe in Jesus but lack any depth of understanding about who he actually is and what he has actually come here to do. And listen, without that understanding, your heart is openly susceptible to hardening over time because as most of you already well know, this life will inevitably at points along the way present some deeply difficult questions that faith without understanding will struggle to answer. Questions about God, questions about life and loss, the meaning of it all. And listen, the time when you need understanding the most is when times are the hardest, which is also when most people walk away from the faith, when things don't turn out like they thought they should, when their prayers didn't get answered the way they wanted them to, when God didn't show up the way we believed he would, and all of a sudden there's a crisis of faith born out of a lack of understanding of who God is and what his purposes in this world actually are, even in the midst of your own difficult circumstances, which again is what happens when you're more focused on your own story than you are on his. You can't see what he's doing, right? It's a simple faith. Listen, a simple faith in Christ is a good place to start. 
But if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you're still relying on that simple faith without any depth of understanding of the story and these 66 books to sustain you through life, you will undoubtedly struggle to maintain a tender heart toward Christ and his people when life applies significant amounts of pressure to your simple faith, as we all know that it will. Okay, so uh, fine, then how do I move on from a simple faith? Well, for starters, you have to recognize and accept that this isn't your story to begin with. It's his. You're living in someone else's story, which means the only way to truly understand what's happening in the story that you're actually living in and why is to focus on him, the author of the story, instead of yourself. Right? The disciples couldn't understand the story they were living in yet because they were still focused on themselves instead of Jesus. And nothing has changed in that regard for us today. Until you learn to take your focus off of yourself and your story and put it squarely on Jesus Christ and his story, his word, his church, all of the things he gave us to learn how to live in his story. Until you do that, you will always lack understanding which will eventually harden your heart toward him and his people. It happens all the time. Typically not all at once. It tends to be a gradual hardening of the heart. And if you pay attention at all, you can see it happening in believers' lives. Professing believers who are so consumed with everything happening in their own story that they fail to pay attention to the masterpiece that God is trying to paint for them. And so they neglect time with him. They neglect his word. They neglect his church. They neglect the work that he's trying to do in their lives. And I'm telling you, if you pay attention at all, you can see it happening as they drift further and further away from the body of Christ and from Christ himself. Until one day, they stop showing up as frequently and then they stop showing up at all, only to find out later that they've walked away from the faith and the church altogether. I'm telling you, I've seen it more times than I care to remember. The hardening of the heart because of a lack of understanding. And listen, it always, it always, when, when you're more focused on your story than you are on his, that's where it always begins. I have... Uh, yet, in fact, ever, I have yet to ever, in 25 years of church ministry, I have yet to even once talk to someone whose heart was hardened toward the church and ultimately walked away. I have yet to have a conversation with one of those folks who wasn't utterly focused on themselves. They neglected time with him. They neglected time in his word. They neglected time in his church and their hearts eventually hardened toward all of it, which is what inevitably happens when you focus on your own story instead of his. You lack understanding of his story. The story that you happen to be living in. And without that understanding, your heart hardens over time because otherwise this life makes no sense. And it makes no sense when you can't see the masterpiece that he's painting. And that truly is the real tragedy of people who walk away from the faith. The untold numbers of masterpieces that never get painted because we're too focused on ourselves to recognize the master painter at work. Let's finish the story for today, verse 27 to the end of the chapter. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, Who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He said this plainly. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So from Bethsaida, Jesus and his disciples travel north. It's about 25 miles to Caesarea Philippi. And on the way there, Jesus asked them a question that previously they wouldn't have been able to answer. And uh, after asking them what people were saying about his identity, he asks the disciples directly the very question that they've been asking each other ever since Jesus calmed the wind and the waves back in chapter 4, verse 41, when they looked at each other, you remember? In great fear and amazement, and they posed the question to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And yet from then to now, much has happened as Jesus continues to teach them to turn their focus on him right up to this two-stage healing of the blind man. And now the time has come for Jesus to ask them directly, who do you say that I am? And without any discussion or hesitation, Peter says plainly, you are the Christ. Finally, after all of the teaching, after all of the miracles, after all of the long days and troubled nights watching Jesus overcome everything from religious authorities out to kill him to life-threatening storms to legions of demons, finally the disciples understand who Jesus actually is, which is the first part of the story that they needed to understand. It's the second part of the story they haven't fully grasped yet and won't until after the resurrection, the part about what Jesus actually came here to do and how he would do it, which is evident immediately after Peter's bold revelation of Jesus's true identity as Jesus begins to teach them now for the first time since they know who he is, he's telling them his mission, the full story of why he came and how that story would unfold, namely through suffering, rejection, crucifixion, and then of course resurrection. Now uh, imagine for a moment that you're a disciple after all that you've given up to follow Jesus, and after all that you've been through with him since, after being harshly rebuked by him repeatedly for not understanding, finally it all comes together and it clicks, and you realize just exactly who it is you've been following. This was a watershed moment for these disciples, and yet immediately after you discover that Jesus is actually the Christ, he tells you that he's going to suffer and die at the hands of their fellow countrymen. 
It's really not hard to understand Peter's reaction. So overcome with emotion was Peter in that moment that he loses his self-control, allowing the enemy to directly influence his response. Back in Luke's gospel, when he describes Satan's temptation of Jesus all the way back in the wilderness, as R.C. Sproul puts it, the very heart of this temptation was the acquisition of a throne without the experience of pain and suffering. In other words, Satan was trying to convince Jesus that he could rule as king on this earth without having to suffer. But of course, Jesus knew what he'd come to this earth to do, and he knew that that would necessitate suffering. And so he resists Satan and the suggestion that he could somehow live out his story without suffering. And Luke says, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time, Luke 4.13. Well, guess what? The opportune time had come. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The English word rebuke that uh, describes Peter's reaction here hardly does justice to Peter's actual response. This was not merely a disagreement or Peter simply trying to correct Jesus. No, the actual word that Mark uses to describe Peter's rebuke of Jesus is the same ancient Greek word that Jesus uses over and over and over again throughout the Gospels to rebuke the demons. This was a hostile attempt by Peter, or more accurately, the enemy through Peter, to take control of the story by telling Jesus that the very thing Jesus said must happen most certainly would never happen. And so Jesus responds not just to Peter, but to the spirit of Satan working in Peter in that moment. Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he goes on to teach them that in fact, not only would he have to suffer, but anyone who chooses to follow me, that's right, you're going to have to suffer as well. And yet as difficult as that must have been for them to hear, especially in that moment, right after they, they realize who Jesus is, as difficult as that must have been, just listen to how Jesus ends the teaching. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. When? When I come in the glory of my Father with the holy angels. In other words, although his story involves suffering, it doesn't end in suffering. No, his story ends in victory. And no power on earth, no power in heaven above or hell below could keep him from living out his story that ends in total victory. The Pharisees could not control it. The disciples could not yet see it. And this world could not stop it. What Jesus said was going to happen was going to happen. No matter how many people would ever choose to embrace his story or reject it, nothing in this world could stop Jesus from completing the story that is his gospel, which is, in fact, the only reason we're even able to exist in this world. But listen, it goes so far beyond the wonder of simply existing because a major part of his Story, listen to me. A major part of the story of Jesus Christ is the masterpiece he is creating that is your life. And nothing in this world can stop him from completing that masterpiece. 
Nothing that is except you. You see, whether it's a desire to control the story, which honestly I think we all struggle with at times, I certainly do. Or maybe a lack of understanding about who he is and what he's actually trying to do in our lives, the picture he's trying to paint, whatever the reason is. We can get so focused on ourselves that we forget that we're living in someone else's story. And so look, I'm just here to remind you today. It's his story. It always has been. And it always will be. And nothing in this world can stop that from ever being true. Doesn't it make sense then, as we go on about our lives, doesn't it make sense that we stop trying to figure out how Jesus fits into our story and instead focus on how we fit into his? Because it's his story. Don't you want to see what he can do with your life? Don't you want to see the masterpiece completed? You're the only one who can keep that from happening when you focus on yourself instead of him. And listen to me, even at that, it's still his story. Whether you accept it or reject it. Whether you believe it or not. Whether you allow him to paint your masterpiece or choose instead to focus on whatever picture it is that you're trying to paint for yourself, either way, you are still living in his story. So why don't you let him make the most of it? Let's pray.